0: Cryptozoology and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond top secret text podcast. Welcome once again to another episode of Destination Ecosmos, the channel that seeks to uncover and explore
1: topics and conspiracy theories, or things UFOs and For most of us, the question as to whether an identified five or conducting are or evidence of extraterrestrial life is one of the things and interesting far and exciting, Yet still hasn't been answered. Many truth-seekers and UFO enthusiasts spend years, sometimes lifetimes, searching for clues and confirmation of the Little Green Men and their spacecraft who have fascinated and intrigued us as far back as the ancients. In modern times, intellectuals such as the theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, as well as ufologist Dr. Stephen Greer, have argued the case for the continuous exploration of the cosmos and the existence of interplanetary and intergalactic life forms. Such individuals have been both applauded and criticized for their stance on what lies beyond our planet. However, no matter what position they choose, they are certainly taken seriously. Unfortunately, with the likes of Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms, the amount of fake sightings and so-called experiences often seems to overshadow the progressive work that is being done across many fronts on such matters. Celebrities also attempt to decipher the truth and, depending on their state of mind, publicly claim to have experienced or even held discussions with alien intelligence which emphasizes the broad spectrum that aliens and UFOs have on our daily lives. One figure to emerge in the last few years as being enthralled by the phenomena is Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. So how does someone like Prince Philip, who is so prominent in modern society, become interested in UFOs you may ask? What encounters or evidence did he digest and request to feed his fascination? And what does this mean in terms of today's understanding and truth about ET intelligence? Join us as we dissect the strange case of Prince Philip and his obsession with UFOs. Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, was born on the 10th of June 1921, on the island of Corfu, Greece. His birth into the Greek and Danish royal dynasties was disrupted at a very early age, when at 18 months old, his family were exiled from their native homeland. Despite this initial turmoil, Philip was able to gain a distinguished education, completing his studies in France, Germany, as well as the United Kingdom, where he would strike up a relationship with then 13-year-old Princess Elizabeth. Having joined the Royal Navy aged 18, Philip would continue to communicate with the young princess as he gained distinction in both the Mediterranean and Pacific fleets. Finally, after regular contact and falling in love with Elizabeth, her father, King George VI, granted the handsome prince permission and approval to marry his daughter in 1946. Philip would abdicate his Greek and Danish royal titles to become what was known as a naturalized British subject and by embracing his grandparent's surname of Mount Babel, would marry Elizabeth on the 20th of November, 1947. Having served as a consort to the British monarchy for their wedding, to his death in April 2021 at the age of 99, makes Prince Philip the longest ever serving consort in history. Having such a decorated education, life and career, as well as being a symbol of strength and support for Her Royal Highness, Queen Elizabeth II, one may wonder why the consort decided to focus his attention on flying saucers. It's been confirmed now, after his death, that the Duke of Edinburgh was a keen subscriber to the sci-fi quarterly magazine Flying Saucer Review, which was created in 1955. Not only was this regular reading for the prince, he was also known to have a massive collection of books, novels, and potential artifacts relating to the UFO anomaly. Discussions, reports, and analysis would spark his interest and lead to numerous hours of study for the seasoned royal, whose enthusiasm for the subject is reported to have originated from his uncle, Lord Louis Mountbatten. The former Governor-General of India, Lord Louis, had written an official report on a UFO event that took place in February 1955 at his Broadlands estate in Romsey, Hampshire. According to the report, the unidentified object was spotted by local bricklayer, Fred Briggs, and was described as being similar to that of a flying disc. As the sighting took place during the winter months in the UK, the giant gray spectacle seemed to be hovering stationary over the snowy grounds of the Lord's Estate and was very clear and identifiable as being not of this planet, according to Briggs. Shockingly, this was not the end of the close encounter as it changed from being a mere sighting to an actual physical battle between the Bricklayer and what appeared to be a man dressed in overalls and close-fitting hat or helmet. Despite the figure appearing unarmed, it slowly disembarked the centre of the vessel and remained still, on what was described as a small platform on the end of the saucer before Briggs was knocked off his bicycle by an unseen force. The power of the strike proceeded to pin him to the ground as the human-like creature stood in watch before eventually re the ship and taking off back into the skies above. After being briefed on the occurrence of his estate, Mountbatten decided to draw up a conclusive record of what happened by meeting and discussing the encounter that befell Mr. Briggs, as well as visiting the site himself. Although Briggs was still in a state of surprise and shock, his account was fully believed by the Lord, and the sense of the incident seemed to solidify his belief that a UFO had entered our atmosphere and attacked an innocent member of the public. His proclamation that what happened on the grounds of Romsey was alien in nature, compelled Batten to write a letter to the Flying Saucer Review, to which he also subscribed. The uncharacteristic, not to mention bizarre letter, spoke of the Martians and Jupiterians' ability to breathe and procreate here on Earth, and that the human race was under threat and must band together against such an extraterrestrial menace. His belief and intention of a possible battle for our planet was further exemplified in a 1962 letter to the Ministry of Defense's scientific advisor, Lord Solly Zuckerman. Mountbatten wanted assurance that his concerns were recognized by the government and intelligence agencies. However, when told that UFOs were no major interest and of little threat to society, he decided to put his anxiety to one side for the sake of his sanity. This did not deter his nephew from continuing the pursuit of UFO crafts and the mysteries of the cosmos. If anything, the fact that the initial report by Mountbatten was kept under wraps until his death in 1979, only added to the conundrum and excitement for Prince Philip. Over the subsequent years that followed, the Duke would continue to research, investigate, and collect all things related to UFO and extraterrestrial intelligence, up to and including 2019. During the summer, before COVID-19 had struck the shores of the UK, Philip was reported to have spent his time reading a book, which is considered to document of Britain's Roswell. The book itself was titled The Holt Perspective. Written in 2016 by retired US Air Force Deputy Commander Colonel Charles Holt, it tells the story of how Holt and his men were ordered to investigate the sighting and potential landing of an unidentified flying object in the Rendlesham Forest in December 1980. During the end of the Christmas and Boxing Day celebrations, the group were dispatched to search and identify an unknown craft in the eastern ridge of the wooded area. During the investigation, the group encounter numerous lights in the sky, which had no identifiable features or markings. As the night progressed, and as the task led into the evening of the 28th, Colonel Holt would observe and report on brightly lit star objects which appeared to be hovering in the sky for several hours and could not be explained by any of the battle-hardened men within his unit. The book would do rather well and would also involve written correspondence to and from the Ministry of Defence, as well as notoriety upon its release. The event struck a chord with Prince Philip, so much so that his then Private Secretary, Brigadier Archie Miller Bakewell, would speak on a regular basis with co-writer John Hansen, keeping him up to speed on the Duke's enjoyment and progress of the books provided by both men. Hansen, who also wrote the follow-up to The Hold Perspective, was astounded to find out that Prince Philip had accumulated more than ten of his books, and that his ex-father-in-law had served on a HMS Kelly with Lord Bangbap for a period of time. Why shouldn't he have been interested in UFOs, said Hansen, when discussing Philip? He even revealed that Prince Charles is interested in it, and Prince William. Although Charles and William are well known for their work and alliances with other charities, events and topics, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that their father and grandfather had passed on his curiosity and enthusiasm for such a phenomenon. Such curiosity can be attributed to former Royal Air Force pilot, reporter and founding editor of Flying Saucer Review, Derek Dempster and his discussions with Sir Peter Horsley. Also a senior air commander, Horsley, who had been station commander at North Weald Air Base, was also a query to Prince Philip, and was given full permission and instruction to gather any and all evidence of UFOs within the various squadrons of the RAF. Before his death in 2001, at the age of 80, Horsley would write an autobiography titled Sounds from Another Room, where he wrote of his time in the Royal Air Force his relationship with Prince Philip, as well as his own personal encounter with the supposed E.T. The meeting, according to Horsley, occurred in 1954 during his years as the special attendant to the Duke in London, with an alien called Mr. Janus. The humanoid creature had kindly invited Horsley to a flat in the heart of the capital, and could apparently read his mind as well as demonstrate other telepathic mystic tendencies. The purpose of the scheduled conversation was for Mr. Janus to gain permission to attend a meeting at Buckingham Palace in order to discuss alien and UFO intelligence with the prince and other invited guests. A rendezvous that was seemingly put together by the prince himself on a regular basis. Horsley admits that although Mr. Janus did not confirm his origin status, the impression and visual aura that he emitted was certainly unlike that of any normal human being. When discussing the encounter, Dempster and Horsley spent many hours piecing together the events, conversations and general characteristics of the man known to try and understand his motives for seeking an evening with the Prince. Horsley recalls pressing Janus for answers to reveal his own personal thoughts on the royal family, especially the Duke of Edinburgh. His detailed complimentary response was that the Prince was a man of great vision, a person of world renown and a leader in the realm of wildlife and the environment. He is a man who believes strongly in the proper relationship between man and nature, which will prove of great importance in future galactic harmony. The emphasis on environment, life on Earth and leadership would certainly be of high importance to visitors of our planet and certainly seemed of great interest to the foreigner. Photographs, letters and discussion of UFOs, flying saucers as well as Philip's borderline obsession with the unexplainable resulted in hoarsely stating in the 1997 Daily Mail piece with Dempster that I believe he was here to observe us. He never saw the man again, nor did he receive an official invite to the palace to join in the secret gatherings, should such a meeting have taken place. Perhaps things would be totally different today. What do you think? Throughout their marriage and personal lives, numerous books, television shows and films have been created to portray and document Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth whether it be their childhood, relationships, or family events. Author and Royal Specialist Philip Eade has written a few books on Prince Philip and was astonished to discover his interest in the UFO enigma. His original idea was to write a biography on UFO enthusiasts and occultists who began to rise up in factitions across the UK and USA in the years following the Second World War. However, once hearing of Prince Philip's fascination on the concept he decided to zone in on the Duke himself. In his 2011 book, Prince Philip, the turbulent early life of the man who married Queen Elizabeth II, he references the encounter between Horsley and the strange Mr. Janus at the residence in Ealing, as well as Philip's correspondence with like-minded truth seekers. In the book, it is written that the prince regularly contacted a British UFO specialist and fellow writer named Timothy Good through various letters. Though universally criticised for his work and declarations, Goode was reported as being Britain's leading UFO researcher in 1987 by the British newspaper The Observer, and was able to extract a direct quote from the Prince on his UFO beliefs. According to the writer, Philip declared in one of their corresponding letters that there are many reasons to believe that extraterrestrials exist, there is so much evidence from reliable witnesses. And so we refer back to the so-called witnesses and evidence providers that Prince Philip alludes to here. There are many ufologists who have numerous written, video, and government accounts suggesting that UFOs and aliens do indeed exist. Therefore, we must assume that whatever information was being provided to Prince Philip was either genuine or at least of some significant interest. Many people, especially in his later years, considered Prince Philip to be many things, some good, some bad. However, when one is given an opportunity to dig deeper into someone's life, it is surprising to find out just how similar their interests are to our own, or perhaps even more illuminating. There will certainly be those of a certain generation or belief system who will be shocked and bewildered at the thought that Prince Philip was in fact obsessed with UFOs. This should not deter nor enhance the beliefs and investigative explorations that we conduct ourselves in our everyday life, or that institutions such as NASA aim to achieve. Though he did not encounter a UFO or close encounter with extraterrestrial entities himself that we know of, the fact that Prince Philip has shone the spotlight onto such a topic is testament to the debate itself. They may be surrounded and guarded every single day. However, this did not discourage a member of the British royal family from asking the life-changing question we have all been asking for years. Are we alone? We hope you enjoyed this episode of Destination Declassified. Thanks for watching. We look forward to seeing you next time. And as ever, keep searching. Welcome to another episode of Destination Declassified where we investigate and pursue the truth, opening our minds to what is possible and out there, in this world and beyond. If you ask anyone what they consider to be the most important and crucial of conflicts in recent history, most will agree that World War II was a major turning point that changed the face of the world and that of warfare forever. Millions of men, women and children had to pull together across the globe in the fight against Hitler and the Nazi regime, many of whom perished in some of the most horrifying and heinous ways imaginable. Since those six turbulent years have passed with victory over the Nazis and Hitler's subsequent suicide, many stories have been told by those who survived, whether it be from our parents and grandparents or portrayed on television and detailed in historical documents. Every story is unique, every story is worth telling However, not many stories involve sightings of UFOs. In this video, we will seek to identify and describe some of the most baffling and authentic sightings of unidentified flying objects which appeared during World War II. Were the sightings legitimate or just figments of people's imagination? Were the witnesses reliable or just trying to make sense of a world gone mad? And what did the government know of these sightings and what did they hide from the public? Let us open our eyes and seek the truth once more as we begin this episode of Destination Declassified. Since the end of the Second World War in 1945, and more especially in today's society, UFO sightings have increased at a colossal rate, with tools such as the internet, mobile phones, and super-lens telescopes giving rise to the phenomenon. Common sense tells us that not all grainy photographs, blurry videos, and testimonies submitted by the public are legitimate, so one must rely on respectable, dependable sources for our information. In the case of World War II, reliability came in the form of Prime Minister Winston Churchill. In August 2010, it was proclaimed that Churchill had demanded the suppressing of information on what was considered a strange incident in the early 1940s. An incident that the PM was convinced would cause nationwide panic. In 2010, the report was released alongside the mass catalog of hidden UFO files by the UK's Ministry of Defense. Almost 5,000 pages were issued detailing officially recorded sightings of aerial phenomena. Among these recordings lay a bizarre letter written by an unnamed scientist claiming that the historic 1938 radio broadcast by Orson Welles' War of the Worlds led Churchill to conceal a wartime incident that he believed would have created mass hysteria across the population and destroyed humans' belief and religion completely. The letter was written as a testimony from the scientist's grandfather, who was a reconnaissance pilot with the Royal Air Force during those active years, and whose missions consisted of flying over numerous hotspots across Europe as the battle raged on below. During one of his local flights over the coast of England, the pilot recalled being intercepted by an object of unknown origin, which he described as being rather large in size, and of metallic manufacturing. Before he knew it, the craft had propelled itself within touching distance of the pilot's aeroplane, much to his amazement and shock. After remaining in close proximity for a short time, the ship hovered and grew increasingly loud, before eventually shooting off at high speed into the distance, leaving the bewildered pilot questioning what he had just seen. Approximately thirty years later, the pilot died, yet his story was still able to filter its way to his grandson and be important enough to store in the National Archives, along with some aerial photographs that were taken of the craft before it disappeared. The story continues that upon hearing of his extraterrestrial story, and claim by the pilot and his command post, Prime Minister Churchill again declared that such an incident should be immediately classified for at least 50 years, and that he didn't want the responsibility of revealing it to the public. This demand was made and confirmed by a personal bodyguard of the PM, whilst discussions with the then commander of Allied forces, General Dwight Eisenhower, were conducted via secure telephone link. The United Kingdom and United States have remained close allies ever since the war, and regularly, to this day, compare and discuss all relative cases of unidentified flying objects, especially those which could pose a threat to national and international security. During the 1940s, with Nazi technology and conspiracies of air bases in the farthest polar regions of the Antarctic, up until present-day threats from terrorist organizations, the need for international diplomacy is paramount in understanding what threats, known or unknown, are out there. We now cross the Atlantic to investigate the eyewitness accounts of what many believe to be decisive evidence and affirmations of what became known as the Foo Fighter UFO sensation. The term which was influenced by the phrase, where there's food, is fire, from the comic strip Smokey Stover, helped to illustrate the fear and threat posed by what was seen by the airmen at the time. As the global conflict was nearing its end, and the slow demise of Hitler's army continued to lift the nation's spirits, there was still a needful requirement of aerial defense fleets. Much of this was supplied by the United States, 415th Night Fighter Squadron, Formed in February 1943, the Air Force unit completed various missions across northwest Europe and beyond, before diminishing in 1947, with all personnel and aircraft being transferred to another squadron. However, in the short time that the 415th Night Fighter conducted their missions and played their part in the defeat of the Nazis, they also came upon an unknown entity which Lieutenant Fred Ringwald recalled all too well. One evening in late November 1944, Lieutenant Ringwald was surveying the skies and grounds of Rhine Valley, located on the French-German border, with co-pilot Lieutenant Ed Schulter and radar operations technician, Lieutenant Donald J. Mears. As night engulfed the plane on all sides, Ringwald suddenly noticed that in the distance, approximately nine large glowing lights hovered in the sky in a linear formation. The glow from these mysterious orbs continued to grow stronger and brighter, which produced an orange, almost burning-type radiance. Transfixed by the lights and the fact that they remained remotely still and in a strange line, it wasn't long before the other men noticed the spectacular image. Lieutenant Schulter tried to maneuver the plane into a better position to improve its visual of the crafts, in case it was newly developed German technology. But before the men could fix upon them completely, all of the lights disappeared at rapid speed. Checking the radar and reporting into their local ground base, it would come as great surprise that nothing whatsoever was picked up or recorded. Luckily for Ringwald and his co-pilots, the sense of confusion and doubt that crept into their minds in the days after the event would be short-lived, as a few weeks later more sightings would be recorded and verified by other members of the 415th Unit. Over the course of the next month, amidst the winter conditions, there would be another three sightings of mysterious anomalies in the sky. One of the American squadron pilots was flying over the German town of Breisach, again in the Rhine Valley region, when in the distance and flying overhead were five or six flashing red and green lights in a shape. The formation and intimidating presence of the spheres captured the pilot's attention and locked in his gaze before disappearing into thin air. Fortunately for Lieutenant Ringwald, the unnamed pilot would immediately report his findings to his superiors, therefore giving credence and corroboration to the men's initial story, for which they were afraid to disclose for fear of being considered mentally unstable. From there, it would seem that more and more officers and flight crews would witness the same entities in the skies above. Another flight lieutenant would have an almost identical encounter to that of Ringwald's, as a large cylindrical shaped figure which seemed to hover and without the need for wings, flew at speed towards Lieutenant Sam Krasny's aeroplane wing as it was attempting to attack. After numerous attempts to outwit the rocket and performing various escape maneuvers, it would prove no use as the red glowing machine continued to stalk the pilots on board before once again vanishing from sight. Krasny and his co-pilot's story would gain support from local flight crews who just before Christmas noticed similar orange and red globes in the sky, which had no resemblance to any airships they had seen or withstood before. The velocity, height, and ease in which they navigated, hovered and shot off into the ether, not only frightened some of the men, but caused various investigations into the sightings. Many considered and knew Lieutenant Krasny as a man who would never entertain the notion of the paranormal, let alone UFOs or aliens. However, family members would notice a change in their loved one's beliefs after the vision he came upon that day. Not only would Lieutenant Cranzi maintain that what he saw was completely unknown in its origin and appearance, he consistently stated that the government were keeping many secrets from the military services and the public after doing his own research. At the time of these tremendous claims by the pilots, crew and ground stations, and despite a collaborative agreement on the flying object's speed, size, and description, many of the 415th Night Fighter Squadron would be considered mentally unstable. Drugs, alcohol, stress, and other factors were used to excuse the men's behavior, as well as their tales of what they saw whilst in the sky. Much to the unit's frustration and superior's annoyance, due to their consistent professionalism and efficiency during the battles that they were involved in, As the squadron dismantled, and each man went his own way in life, the possibility of UFOs and little green men were discarded as potential balloons, flares or certain weather conditions deceiving the naked eye. However, it's worth noting that as time has gone by, and selective evidence of wartime mysteries has been disclosed, the belief that what the men saw was indeed real is not beyond the realms of possibility. On the flip side of this belief, are the skeptics and alternative theories who state that what was being manufactured, used, and or tested was that of Nazi-militarized crafts, which were being generated in remote areas of the world, with potential dabbling in the occult. Could it be that secret experiments were being conducted by German scientists, determined to engineer a militarized, time-traveling aircraft, capable of winning the war with ease? Some think so, known as Glocke or the bell, was, as the name affirms, a bell-shaped machine that was seemingly approved by Hitler and his SS secret police in a daring attempt to strike back at Allied forces. Known for their persistence and creativity in advanced technology and engineering, the German weapon systems would eventually be reproduced by the US military, with artillery, such as the V-2 missile, being physically secured under what became known as Project Paperclip. Known for their dabbling in the occult with secret bases in rural parts of Germany and possibly the Arctic Circle the SS anti-gravity program would pose a serious, orbit theorized threat to UK and US forces on the ground as well as in the air. Some believe the attempt to test the bow by captured German scientists as an aerial strike body after the war ended, indeed failed and became known as the Kecksburg Incident. When a bell shaped UFO allegedly crashed outside Kecksburg, Pennsylvania in December 1965, One of the scientists who was captured by the Americans after the collapse of the Third Reich, and whose past was extenuated for his use in Project Paperclip, was Werner von Braun, a 32-year-old rocket engineer. Von Braun, along with another 1,600 engineers and scientists, were recruited and spared trial in order to develop an arsenal capable of defending any opposing threats, mainly that of the Soviet Union, as the Cold War years began. It was von Braun who initially worked closely with the Nazi regime to create the V2 rocket, a long-range guided ballistic missile that was used many times against European nations of resistance. This new technology, developed by highly intelligent engineers, would certainly confuse the Allied aerial forces, as the missiles radiated a strong glow from the rear end, and at first glance looked like a cigar-shaped plane with no wings in 1938, German inventor Joseph Andreas Epp would complete a draft of documents and sketches of what became known as flying saucers, the most commonly cited UFO, especially during the 20th century. Epp would combine his drawings with a newly designed helicopter to generate a prototype craft that would take off from the ground from a stationary position, using the same rotor functions, which were secured underneath the saucership. In 1941, these newly created models were tested, tweaked, and reconfigured numerous times from an air facility in Nazi-occupied Prague, which had been specifically opened by Berlin's Ministry of Aviation for this purpose. However, despite many believing that a number of completed crafts were used in attacks against European forces, or restationed in the Antarctic, as described in the US-led expedition Operation High Jump, No definitive proof exists of the flying saucer phenomenon. In April 1945, the Soviet army began their last major assaults on German-occupied territories, and in reclaiming Czechoslovakia, demanded that all engineering works be dismantled and destroyed. So in the end, all known physical crafts were scrapped, with engineers being arrested, recruited or killed as the end of the war approached. With the eventual surrender of German forces and subsequent death of Hitler, the joy and celebrations from the Allied countries would have been a monumentous event. However, for those haunted by what they had seen, the paranoia would never leave them. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before a reminder came down from the skies which has baffled the world for decades. The 1947 Roswell incident. In the summer of the year mentioned, a civilian pilot named Kenneth Arnold would report seeing what he described as flying saucers in the sky. This coupled with local rancher, Mac Brazil's findings of tin foil, rubber, and wooden materials, as well as the RAAF 509th Operations Group's recovery of a flying disc, sent the press and population into a frenzy. As the years have followed, conspiracies surrounding the Roswell incident have multiplied and extended their reach across the globe from intergalactic intelligence sharing with the US president, to underground bases and interplanetary space travel. The possibilities of such theories are debatable, but the likelihood of witnessing something unidentified in the sky, whether it be during wartime or in the most remote, quiet regions of land and sea, can never be fully questioned by those who say, I know what I saw. As we end this episode of Destination Declassified, it's worth taking a moment to remember the sacrifices those men, women, and children made in serving their country and protecting their families and fellow humans. No matter what claims have been made or incidents covered up, the bravery of all those who experienced World War II in any shape or form should be honored and respected. Perhaps there was something out there during those years. Perhaps not. Perhaps we will never know, until the time is right, that is. Thank you once again for tuning into this episode. If history has taught us anything, it's to keep searching for the truth and question everything. As we continue to look to the skies and wonder, what if? Welcome to... known as one of the most violent cases involving extraterrestrials ever to be documented. UFOs appeared in the skies above a small Brazilian city and discharged lights that caused injuries to many men women and children. It is a rare case that culminated in at least two deaths and the alleged suicide of the commander of the Brazilian Air Force and yet surprisingly little is known about the class UFO flag outside of Brazil. On the northeastern coast of Brazil lies the second largest of the Brazilian states, Pará. Here, the island city of Claras is separated from the mainland because of its location in the Amazon River Delta, as it empties into the Atlantic Ocean. During the late 1970s, at the time of the events in question, there were approximately 2,000 residents living there. Claras relied heavily on the simple professions of fishing and farming. This makes the occurrences seem all the more credible. There had been no reports of strange incidents before, but most of the sightings began in August of 1977. Abel Trindade was at home on the 14th of September 1977. It was 9.30 p.m. and he was listening to the radio when he saw a blue light coming through the ceiling. He became paralyzed and unable to scream for help. After the incident, he suffered from a sore throat and headache for several days. It was very early in the morning on the 4th of October in Belém, Brazil. When 48-year-old farm worker, Benedito, saw a bright blue light. It was hovering just above a treetop. It stayed there for a few seconds before slowly moving away. It made no noise, and although Benedito was afraid, he was unharmed. Unlike another 40-year-old farmer, Manuel Dos Santos, just three weeks later. He was in bed when suddenly the interior of his house was lit up by a bright light that came through the roof. Manuel tried to get out of bed but was paralyzed and unable to scream for help. After several minutes, he could eventually stand up, but the left side of his body was both sore and numb for over a week. In the days that followed, he would see many lights on the horizon, very low in the sky. They would slow down, speed up, and then suddenly disappear. On the 23rd of January, 1978, Manuel Filho went down to the beach to meet his friends and go fishing. As he arrived, he saw a strange light hovering over the beach. He realized that the light was emanating from some sort of object. It was about 10 feet wide and five feet high. It was dark in color, yet somehow transparent and with a green bluish light underneath. Manoel ran back to his father's house to get his brother. By this point, many of the people were afraid of the UFOs and their light beams, so his brother refused to come. When he returned to the beach, his friends were waiting and they all saw the craft leave at a very high speed. These are just four of over 300 sightings that were reported in Colorado and the surrounding towns and villages during 1977 and 78. Several people described seeing lights at night and then being attacked by rays. Some were even able to show burn marks and scarring where they had been hit. Others showed strange symptoms, such as hair loss in areas where the beam had struck or rashes and numbness. The situation had become so bad that many of the citizens were leaving the area. This compelled the mayor of Clares, as well as officials from about 30 other villages in the area to request that the Brazilian government send in the air force The mayor said that there wasn't a moment of peace during that time. It was a chaotic situation, and many of the women and children were being evacuated from the island, although the men would stay to protect their homes and belongings. At night, the men would build large fires and shoot projectiles into the air, hoping that it would scare away what they called the Chupa Chupas. In Latin America, there has long been a mythology surrounding livestock deaths and their suspected ensacination. The creature assumed to be the culprit for these happenings is known by the Portuguese world Chupacabra, which translates as "goatsucker." The people of Clarice now used a similar word to describe the UFOs that they had encountered. Many of those who had been struck by the beams were left with small depressions or marks on their skin. Some also said they felt as though blood had been drawn during the attack, and this resulted in fainting and reports of anemia in some of the victims through loss of blood. At first, strange lights were seen at night, out over the Atlantic Ocean, and were described as being vague and shapeless. But as the lights came closer inland, they were actually discovered to be UFOs. Some of these crafts were said to be ovoid, others were saucer-shaped or disc-like, with spinning lights revolving around the exterior. Some were described as umbrella-shaped, and others as hat-shaped. Some silver, and others brown. Some huge, and others quite small. It appeared as though there were several types of UFO, all converging on the one place. The Portuguese translation of the word unidentified flying object is extremely complex, so the islanders used many other words to describe their experiences, calling the strange phenomena names such as the worm, the thing, the fire, the animal, or the blood. Because they came from the direction of the Atlantic, some of the local people thought that the UFOs were rising up out of the sea. This led to many theories about an underwater base around the Bay of the Sol area. On the 29th of October, Benedito Campos and his pregnant wife, Sylvia Marie, were relaxing in their living room. Through the window, they could see an oval-shaped object hovering outside. It was silver in colour and appeared to have a green searchlight. As the couple watched, the light fired through the window, directly hitting Sylvia and causing her to fall into a trance-like state. She later said that she felt as though her veins had swollen after she had been struck. While Benedito was trying to help his wife, the couple saw a pair of figures enter their property. One of the figures was carrying a gold torch. A neighbor came running to the house to help the couple, and the figures left. Now almost catatonic, Silvia was carried by her husband to the neighbor's home, whilst the strange object seemed to follow them. It then struck Benedito with its green beam of light, leaving him almost paralyzed. The neighbor helped to get the couple to his boat, so that they could be taken to the nearest medical center. The neighbor reported that the UFO followed them to the boat, but did not omit the beam again. The couple had to stay in hospital for some days after their terrifying experience. It was feared that Silva may suffer a miscarriage because of her distress, and Benedito endured a debilitating bout of depression. His mother said that she found him weeping frequently in the days following their ordeal, and the camp hosts were not the only people to see figures inside of the UFOs. In January of the following year, Francisco Enrico de Souza was approached by a light in the sky. As it got nearer, he could see that the light was part of a much larger UFO. The object was cylindrical in shape, 15 feet across, and at least 25 feet in diameter. Spellbound, Francisco was rooted to the spot, as he stared up at the craft. Once it was directly overhead, a door dropped open, emitting a great deal of light. He could see two people sitting in the craft, as though it was a car. They looked to be a male and a female, and sat completely still, never moving. Then it was though a magnet pulled Francisco up. Terrified, he grabbed onto a palm tree, wrapping his arms and legs around the trunk. The light was very hot, burning his skin, and Francisco was in a great deal of pain because his chest was scraped raw from clinging onto the tree. He thought he was going to die, and began to cry. Suddenly, some sort of hot liquid was poured onto him, burning his skin even more, but Francisco would still not let go. Eventually, the doors of the craft closed and it flew away. It was late October in the nearby town of Santo Antonio de Tua. Just before midnight, Manuel da Espirito Santa was hanging out in front of his house with his high school buddies, Julio, Polo, Decca, and Calito. Suddenly, Manuel could see a reddish-orange star-shaped object heading in their direction from the east. As it got closer, the light became more yellow. The object stopped about 60 feet in front of the group of friends. Manuel could now see that it was about 4 to 5 feet wide and barrel shaped with two tubes leading off. One of the tubes was red, the other blue. The top half of the object emitted a blue light and inside sat two human-like creatures who appeared to be flying the craft. There was some sort of division between the two crew members, who seemed to be a male and a female and were wearing headphones and glasses. The red tube was pointed at Manuel and his friends, and a red light ray hit the group. Manuel felt like he had been electrocuted. He became semi-conscious and was unable to move his arms and legs. The craft now began to move away. It rose up in a swaying motion, gaining speed and altitude as it did so. Manuel felt numb for several minutes until the paralysis eventually wore off. Claudia Muir was able to describe her late night visitor in even greater detail. She was asleep in her bed when a bright flash of light awoke her. The light beamed down from the roof of her house and struck her, burning her left breast. Now, in a lot of pain, she tried to scream but was unable to make any noise. She saw that the object was umbrella-shaped, and from within it, she could see two occupants. They had clear skin, oriental eyes, and large ears. The figures were dressed in green, skin-tight suits. One of them carried some type of gun, which had fired at Claudemiro. She was struck again with a beam of light and collapsed. The experience left her with a sickening headache and weakness for several days. Her health was never fully restored. She was treated by the local doctor, Dr. Calvajo. Dr. Calvajo had treated many of the victims and saw their injuries firsthand. The doctor was only 22 at the time, newly qualified and skeptical of the UFO and extraterrestrial stories. She worked at the local medical center. During the Clorez UFO flap. Carvalho treated over 30 people who had claimed to have been attacked by the chupa-chupa beam. She said that the victims suffered from burns that were nearly always on the neck and or chest area. The burns would look very similar to a bite mark, two small parallel punctures. Many of the victims would also have symptoms of anemia. This led to a belief in some of the UFO-affected areas that the beam of light was somehow targeting people for their blood. The doctor kept and compared notes about her patients and noticed that they appeared to have been chosen at random. They were both male and female and of different ages. They all had similar symptoms though, a raised temperature, chronic migraines, nausea, body tremors, dizziness and extreme fatigue. Many also complained of an intense burning sensation around the area, that they had been hit by the beam and typically they also had two small puncture marks. Carvalho found that all of her patients had wounds to the torso that their hair would later fall out at the point of impact. She was curious as to what could cause those sorts of burns, and she was also baffled by the hair loss. Many of the victims never had hair regrow in the affected areas again. She took two of her patients to the capital of Berlin for further treatment, and they later died. One had flu-like symptoms, and the cause of death given was a stroke. Strangely, the two small puncture wounds on her left breast were not mentioned on the death certificate. Dr. Carvalho, had treated cancer patients before and was familiar with radiotherapy treatment, and she found that the burns were consistent with that type of therapy associated with cobalt radiation. Most of her patients told her the same story. A UFO would arrive without warning, and a three-inch beam of light would hit them. Then, after they had been struck by the beam, they were paralyzed, as though a heavy weight was pushed against their body. Their eyes were open, and although they would try to scream, they would find it impossible. The beam was almost too much to bear and felt like a cigarette burn. Eventually the light beam would withdraw and the craft would disappear. It seemed that the alien attackers never had to search for their targets. There was no searchlight or spotlight that gave a victim any warning that an attack was imminent. The craft would just come down and then the beam would strike. The precise target on the body would be random, sometimes the face or torso, sometimes an arm or a leg. The regional air command of the Brazilian Air Force arrived 90 days after they had been requested to begin their investigation with a group of only 30 men, The core team comprised of just six men. The doctor would later report that she was initially ordered by the Air Force to persuade the locals that it was all just a case of mass hysteria and that the people were suffering from some sort of sociogenic illness. The authorities did not want widespread panic, but the doctors refused to do this, even though she was treated with dismissal. No longer cynical, she had experienced the phenomena herself when she was walking down the main street in Clares late one afternoon. She saw some sort of UFO hovering quite low over the road. It was cylindrical in shape, and there were two small beings inside of the craft. She believed they were no more than four feet tall. The investigation into the strange events was headed by Captain Eurange Hollander, who was head of the information office and his second-in-command, Sergeant Flavio Costa. The two men led all communications during the inquiry. From the late 77 to early 78, they carried out a very comprehensive investigation into the sightings. They interviewed hundreds of witnesses from Clarez and the surrounding villages, The what became known as Operation Saucer. The team began evidence gathering, but they had little in the way of equipment for the undertaking, just a few cameras and tape recorders. However, many of them were able to experience the phenomenon for themselves, and saw the mysterious UFOs many times during the investigation. They became so familiar with the schedules of the craft. That they could predict where and when one would appear next and were able to take footage and photographs of what they saw. This included film of the craft going into the sea. Unfortunately after only four months Operation Saucer was ordered to close down. However by this point Captain Hollander and Sergeant Costa had collected together a report of over 500 pages as well as more than 200 photographs, film of the UFOs, numerous sketches and maps showing the routes that the craft would take. Although it had now officially been closed, the investigators continued to work on the case because of their own personal interest. In spite of their findings being top secret, random pages from the inquiry started to leak out to the press and UFOlogists were able to assemble a file of over 300 encounters and sightings. Over half of these incidents had been experienced by the investigators themselves. 20 years later, Captain Holanda was interviewed for a Brazilian UFO magazine. He had been retired for quite some time and decided that he wanted to share his first-hand knowledge and evidence of the Claraz Flap with the world. During this interview, he told a strange story of his experience during the 1977 investigation. Like many of the other witnesses that he had questioned, he was awoken at night by the beam of a bright light. He then felt the presence of a being enter his room and lay down beside him. The being had no discernible facial features and spoke into Hollander's ear with what he described as a metallic-sounding voice, telling him, that he meant him no harm. Only three months later, Captain Holanda was found hanged at his home from a suspected suicide. This led to many conspiracy theories, and it was alleged that the government murdered Holanda in order to shut him up. Other theories about what was really going on in Claras have led to speculation about Russia and China using the area for testing of new technology. This is always the case when there are UFO sightings over the Americas. There have also been rumours about CIA drones and even top-secret testing carried out by the USA itself, so it's unknown which country's governments, if any, would have been responsible for the captain's death. Ball lighting is often used as an explanation for UFO sightings and has been offered up as a reason for the lights that were seen entering several homes in the area, but there is little evidence for this. Also, not a lot is known about ball lighting, and it's difficult to explain one strange phenomenon with something else that is just as inexplicable. Because many of the victims were asleep or in bed at the time of their encounters, sleep paralysis has been proposed as a reason for their experience. Sleep paralysis is a documented condition, usually affecting a person, as they are either falling asleep or just waking up. This will explain some of the things felt by the eyewitnesses, but not the burns, puncture marks, or other later ongoing symptoms, such as headaches and a lack of mobility. In 2005, a group of Brazilian ufologists were successful in their campaign to have the Air Force open some of their classified files. It became clear that Brazil had quite a long history of government involvement in UFO hunting, and there had been top secret investigations into sightings or unidentified aerial phenomena since as early as 1954. Much of the evidence on file had been gathered by the Air Force, but there were also reports from the Brazilian Army, Navy, and intelligence personnel A lot of data had been collected, including photographs and film, as well as written documentation. The Air Force finally agreed after acknowledging the importance of UFOlogy. Several of the files were examined, including reports from Clarès. The astounding occurrences that took place during Operation Saucer make it one of the most important events in UFOlogy. Although many details of the incident have never been revealed, several of the key witnesses have since died, and much of the evidence is still classified. And so, we may never know the full story of the infamous Claretz UFO Incident.
0: UFO cases are nothing new for many around the world. It's gotten to the point that even arguing about their existence seems pointless at this rate, with the overwhelming amount of evidence by means of recorded footage, photographs, and witness accounts. Recently on the channel, we have focused on more witness testimony rather than anything else, since apart from seeing it with our own eyes, hearing the recounting of contact with an alien species tends to be very strong evidence, especially after years have passed and those who were there still maintain their story and do not change any detail. One of the most popular forms of this comes from Voronezh, Russia. In 1989, when three children came into contact with two aliens and a robot. But, apart from just that, it was not only seen by just three children, but also adults as well, backing up their story to the shock of the rest of the country. It doesn't stop there either, as this is one of the very few cases where abduction occurs right in front of numerous witnesses as well as physical samples being left behind. So let's take a look into what is known as the Voronezh UFO and see why this is labeled as the most popular UFO story that no one has ever heard of. starts on September 27th, 1989, when three children are playing in a park nearby their neighborhood in Verona, Russia. The group consisted of two boys and one girl, with their parents nearby keeping an eye on them while they conversed with one another. Suddenly, one of the boys stopped playing and was staring at the sky. The other two children noticed his sudden focus and looked in the direction he was staring at. The parents quickly noticed when the sounds of their kids laughing and playing ceased and will replace with the sounds of an almost complete silence. Any parent will be able to tell you that when you can't hear your own child when they should be having fun, then something is not right. Acting on this, the group made their way over to their children and began to see the same craft in the sky that their children were currently fixated on. When they made their way to their kid's side, they began trying to break them out of the trance when suddenly a small silver ball-like object in the sky began to quickly make its way down to the ground. To the shock of everyone there. Some adults ran away with their kids, whereas others were in disbelief at what they were seeing happen right in front of their eyes. When the silver ball finally landed on the ground, smoke shot out from the base of the craft and the complete silence filled the air again. After a few seconds the craft revealed a door that opened to a very bright light from inside. Walking out of the craft were two humanoid figures still hidden by the intensity of the bright light. The crowd observing them couldn't make out too much in terms of detail, but as the figures made their way further from the ship, their future became very visible. What was described was that they were very tall, around 9 feet. They had three eyes and were wearing what looked like an actual dress suit, except it was all in silver, with bronze boots and a disc on their chest. The aliens didn't even seem to notice the group of humans staring at them, as they were told to have simply started examining the area. Shortly after this, another figure emerged from the craft, but this time it was very clearly a robot. Described as very large and boxy with numerous lights on the base of it. It followed the aliens around and as well didn't seem to notice the group of people watching them from mere feet away. The quiet murmurs and gasp of the crowd didn't seem to affect them or even make them aware of their presence. There was talk amongst the group that one of them should say something to the aliens and announce themselves, yet nobody seemed willing to do that for fear of some kind of possible attack. One of the boys that originally saw the craft apparently became too frightened and let out a scream, instantly alerting the aliens as their heads shot around to look at the crowd, and seemingly was the first time that they noticed that they were even there, as it was said that their entire posture changed to a more defensive position. Suddenly, the group started moving away, but the boy who originally screamed wouldn't, or perhaps, couldn't move. The parents tried to move their son, yet he was stuck there. They physically could not move him, and his eyes stayed fixated on the aliens. When the group looked back to the craft, they noticed that the robot and one of the figures had made their way closer to the ship, yet one stayed and held their position. The alien then pulled out what looked to be a gun with an extremely long tube measuring at what seemed to be around two feet long and actually shot it in the direction of the boy, and suddenly, the boy vanished. Horrified, the parents screamed and went to run to the alien who just shot at their child, and when they got close, the boy suddenly reappeared about five feet from the alien. It was then said that the boy vomited, and during this confusion, the alien made its way to their craft, and then suddenly, it vanished as well, leaving the entire scene in chaos as nobody could explain what had just happened. Children were crying, adults were screaming, and the aliens were gone. After the commotion had somewhat settled down, the children were all taken to the hospital to be examined as the parents had no idea what they could have come into contact with. The police were also notified about this, and when they arrived at the hospital, they were told the full story by the parents. The entire scene was very hectic, as the police were trying to understand if what occurred was an attack, or if the kids were making it up and the parents were just scared for their safety. Eventually, the police were told where it happened, and they made their way there to investigate. Once arriving, they quickly looked over the area and talked about a strange burning smell that was in the air. The spot where the craft had been reported to have landed did have impressions on the ground of something heavy laying on it recently. The area was actually even later examined by a group of scientists and it turned out that there was radioactivity in the area, something that in the prior year wasn't detected. This would also make sense as previous stories that we have talked about have included this random radiation after an alien contact. During their search, the police also found something else that to this day is still unexplainable. Two rocks were found at the scene, and the crazy thing about this is that after being examined numerous times since their discovery, it has been learned that they are in fact not from Earth, but from some other planet. How these two rocks would randomly appear in this playground after a supposed encounter with aliens is something people still, to this day, cannot explain, other than it being completely factual. A few days after the incident, the children were interviewed in-depth by police officers and then eventually psychologists, and none of them had any different view or version of the story the boy who was actually shot by the gun was even able to give a clear recollection of what he had experienced, with the only exception being of when he vanished and reappeared. He was said that all he could recall then was seeing smoke and then suddenly he was in a different part of the field. Scientists, UFO enthusiasts, and police have all looked into this case over the past decades, but nobody can seemingly give any kind of proof that any of what occurred there was fake. The rocks are still around. Although I couldn't find their exact location of where they are stored, they do still have periodic reports about them and if any progress has been made on learning about them. The children, now adults, all stick to their story and have not ever changed a single detail and for many, this is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, proof of alien contact. But. Throughout the years, there have been numerous times when people either directly call out or accuse the United States government of knowing more than they are letting on about aliens and UFOs, with claims that events have been hidden or covered up, witnesses to them disappearing, and government figures refusing to even acknowledge anything about the event in question. Some examples of this were in 2009 when former astronaut Edgar Mitchell accused the United States government and NASA that they were blocking information about alien visitation and that it was time for them to release the information and make it public because the American people have a right to know about any and all possible threats to their safety. In his own words, he was quoted as saying, We are being visited. It is now time to put away this embargo of truth about the alien presence. I call upon our government to open up and become part of this planetary community that is now trying to take our proper role as a spacefaring civilization. Another example is when earlier this year in June, when the Navy released previously classified footage of a UFO in 2004, while pilots were on a training mission, the strange craft seemed to move at speeds that had the jets struggling to keep up with and pulling very tight and abrupt maneuvers that even seasoned pilots would deem practically impossible to accomplish. (coughs) And now just this past week when a former Israeli space security chief made the claim that aliens do exist and that the United States government, particularly Donald Trump, knows about it and has for a while. The former security chief, Haim Ased, claimed that communication between humans and a galactic federation have been made and that they are not yet ready to announce their arrival to the rest of society. He also added that this federation was curious to understand and learn about humans and were seeking to understand the fabric of the universe. In today's video, we will examine this claim made by a well-respected member in the space community and the Israeli military. Are the things that Haim is saying true? And if so, why have we not heard more of this sooner? Does President Trump really know of this and is he hiding it from the American people? How many other countries' leaders have this information, and do they know more than Trump? Let's find out as we discuss if we have been contacted by Galactic Federation. begins when, just last week, Haim made claims about aliens being real, and both himself, the Israeli government, and President Trump know all about it and are very aware of the ongoing developments, going as far as stating that he was taking his time before even mentioning it due to the public safety in mind. Haim said that he has known about this for some time and that he is very aware of how it sounds that he could possibly lose all of his credibility for speaking out about a topic that many people around the world would deem as crazy ramblings from an old man who has spent too much time reading conspiracy theories. He also states that another reason he has kept his mouth shut about this was due to the public's reaction. He was worried that releasing this information could cause possible mass panic, and given the events that have happened in the world in 2020, that may be the last thing that we need right now. And honestly, he has a solid point with making that argument. We have wondered about for many years if we are in fact alone. There have been countless movies, TV shows, books, video games, and more made about the concept of alien life being out there, and a higher power or organization are very aware of it and are simply keeping it a secret for their own selfish reasons. But perhaps the reasons are not entirely selfish. Haim makes a very good point because we don't exactly know how the general public would react to this type of groundbreaking and history-making news. You can't just look at this from one side either. You need to take into account what people would make of this information in both a religious and scientific perspective. Would people see this as a sign from a higher power that the end of days is upon the world, and who knows what kind of danger that would create? Or would people be welcoming to the idea? And I think the best answer is to look at how we as a species have had any type of major change, and typically it is met with violence. Unfortunately, we are known for our hostility towards not only our own kind, but also the animal kingdom and Mother Earth as well. I don't mean to sound like I am rambling here, but I think it is very important to look at all sides of this. The news of alien contact, and on top of that, an alien federation is huge, and if true, would change the course of history forever. And I think that it would be in both a positive and negative way. More on that though later. Haim also went on to discuss that there is an agreement between the United States government and this galactic federation that gives aliens the right to conduct various experiments on Earth. Now, I am not sure if that means it is strictly tied to just the United States or the entire planet, but I have a hard time seeing how one country can be the voice for every other country that calls Earth home. So, if it is just tied to the United States, then why? And what kind of experiments are going to be conducted? On plant life, animals, humans, or all of them? Could these experiments be as simple as collecting soil and flowers? Or could it be more violent? By seeing how much a human being could take before they die? Or react in a hostile way? I am sure that the United States government have taken this into consideration as giving another species free reign to do whatever test they would like could easily have negative repercussions. And I think that the last thing that the United States government wants right now would be an intergalactic war. Haim has also said that aliens are waiting for humans to grow as a species before making their presence fully known to everyone. What they could mean by that could be a number of things. We may need to increase our intelligence as a whole, or we could actually need to evolve, but into what exactly? It is also said that we need to further our understanding, and while that makes sense, granted yes, we do know a lot about space, but given that space in theory could possibly be endless, then how would we even go about learning about something that has no end? Or does this alien federation simply want us to know not how planets work, but more so how the life on those planets work? We could be looking in the right direction, yes, but we could be missing the bigger picture altogether. Several people in both the White House and the Pentagon were asked to comment on this story, but all refused to talk about it. And this only builds the hype that what Haim is saying may actually be the real deal. It seems to be a common trait in history that whenever something groundbreaking happens, many heads in government do not acknowledge anything about it until years, if not decades later, which by then, much of the hype and interest has died down. Another interesting piece of information that Haim mentioned was that there is a secret underground base on Mars in which acts as a housing area for United States representatives and aliens to meet and discuss future plans. He, however, had no information on what these plans could be. All of this extraordinary information has made a lot of waves across the UFO community and for good reason. It is very rare in which a high-ranking or highly respected and credible member of the government steps out and blows the whistle on something this big. But what I keep going back to is that what Haim said about humans needing to be ready and understanding the impact of this claim, that aliens are in fact real, and that members of the United States government know about it something I wondered was all of the countless UFO videos that are available online from both recent and very old. This channel has talked about numerous of them, and could it be that aliens were in fact showing themselves? Perhaps that was part of their contract, that they could be visible for only a short amount of time. But the videos that are out there with this footage, could it have been a test of some kind? to see how humans would react to seeing something not of this world. Would they be on board with it and believe what they were seeing? Or would they doubt it and think it was simply a fake and not give it another thought? Would that type of mindset impact on the aliens' decision to show themselves to our species? Is the government, who for so long have refused to acknowledge any type of talk about aliens existing, be a part of that test, if the leaders of the countries all around the world Know this, are we expected to simply fall in line, or are we supposed to question and argue it with them, with our own counterpoints? Is there an underlying means to what we have been speculating for decades? There will absolutely be updates to this story, and we are going to stay on top of it because I do not think we have heard the last of this. As I mentioned, this is getting a lot of traction on Twitter and various news sources, and I think that this is only the start of something potentially very big. What do you think? Do you think this could be real? Have the United States government been in contact with aliens? And do you think there was a contract signed? Let us know your thoughts in the comments, as we really want to keep this conversation going. We hope you enjoyed this video, and we will see you all in the next one.
1: Often called lizard people, reptiloids, saurians or draconians are the blood-drinking humanoid shapeshifters that are believed to roam the earth with the single objective of enslaving the human race in mind. These extraterrestrial reptilians are suspected of taking important and greatly influential roles in human society such as being political leaders, corporate executives, award-winning celebrities and billionaires. Therefore by shapeshifting into their human form. And occupying these ranks in the hierarchy of society, they are allegedly capable of exerting their power, effectively working toward the end goal of dominating the whole of mankind. This theory was largely popularized by a man called David Icke, a former BBC sports reporter in the UK, who later went on to become a famed New Age philosopher, and his work on the reptilian elite theory has been currently regarded as one of the biggest promoters of it. According to Icke, thousands of years ago, these reptilian beings intervened on planet Earth, having descended from constellations such as Draco and Orion. Manipulating our DNA, leading to the fundamental reptilian genetics, proven to be currently present in human brains. Encroaching on other conspiracy theorist territory, I even claims that these lizards are behind secret societies, such as the Freemasons and the Illuminati. Examples of these creatures, who some believe have had their claws dug into humankind since ancient times, are Queen Elizabeth II, George W. Bush Jr., and Bill Gates, all of which are currently alive and presumed to be actively working to prevail over the people. As of today, the reptilian elite theory is thought to be one of the most successful political conspiracies of our time. Seeing as Ike has supporters across around 47 countries, and a staggering estimate of 12 million U.S. citizens are thought to be believers in the reptilian elite conspiracy theory. Now, let's take a look into it. As we previously talked about, David Icke is considered to be one of the leading authors in the Lizard People Conspiracy, and has written several books, all of which detail his beliefs in varied conspiracies. Icke visited a psychic in the 1990s who told him that his presence on Earth had a greater purpose, and that he would receive a message from the world beyond. Thus he announced publicly that the world would be devastated by natural disasters, and started treading down the path of New Age philosophy. His theory regarding the universe states that everything consists of vibrational energy and the previously discussed reptiloids, which Ike says are called Archons of Anunnaki, have intercepted Earth and modified the human genome. According to this theory, the Archons are a hybrid race of shape-shifting reptilians, which infiltrate powerful secret societies such as the Illuminati and the Babylonian Brotherhood. The Illuminati is a secret society that operated in the late 1700s and became known for the group's beliefs in enlightenment ideals and their attempts to promote said ideas among the elites. Due to their pursuit of influence over these elites, the Illuminati has since then been a target of distrust and an important puzzle piece in many conspiracy theories, amongst which is the reptilian elite. However, the historical evidence we currently possess affirms that they were unable to produce any relevant changes because of the group's small numbers. Nonetheless, many new age thinkers, like David Icke, have attributed some level of influence and suspicion to the Illuminati, which rubs off on the reptilian elite theory. By infiltrating human secret societies that exert influence over the 1%, the rich and powerful, theorists regard that these reptiloids are able to determine or guide certain decisions therefore effectively manipulating the course of human life and society. Ike further claims that the manipulation of the elites has the objective of keeping humans control from fear so that these actions can feed off the negative energy that results from it. The objective of these intergalactic creatures, who now pose as public and influential people, is also to instate a new world order, propelling humanity towards a global fascist state where no freedom of speech will be allowed. The theory says that the only way to defeat the lizard people is to wake the human population up to the truth, so that their hearts can be filled with love and no negative energy is produced, forcefully starving these creatures of their source of power. In an interview, Ike said, When you get back into the ancient world, you find this reoccurring theme of union between a non-human race and humans, creating a hybrid race. I started coming across people who told me they had seen people change into a non-human form. It's an age-old phenomena known as shapeshifting. The basic form is like a scaly humanoid with reptilian rather than humanoid eyes. This statement goes to show that Ike believes that the Archons have been interbreeding and coexisting with humans for the whole of history, and as of 2003, the reptilian bloodline included all the American presidents, three British and two Canadian prime ministers, several Sumerian kings and Egyptian pharaohs, the Queen Mother and a large number of rich individuals and celebrities. Although Ike is a famed figure in the reptilian elite theory, he isn't the only author who has spoken openly about it and defended its supposed truth. Michael Barker, who is a professor at Syracuse University in the United States, posits that the idea of a reptilian conspiracy might have originated from the fiction of Conan the Barbarian's creator, Robert E. Howard. Howard's short story, The Shadow Kingdom, draws on theophysical ideals of lost worlds, like the lost civilization of Atlantis, and on Helena Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine, from 1888, in which dragon men are referenced. Howard mentions serpent men, which are described as human-reptile hybrids, with human bodies and snake heads, who could imitate humans as well. These serpent men, were capable of shapeshifting and mind-control abilities, with the objective of infiltrating humanity and controlling it, Since we mentioned the lost worlds of Atlantis, and seeing as it's linked to many of the reptilian elite theories concocted over the years, Atlantis is the fictional society that Plato created, a utopian place found by half-human, half-god beings. Atlantis was depicted to be underwater, and because of its mystical and alluring characteristics, many believe Plato's writings are rooted in reality. In the 1940s, American author and religious leader Maurice Doriel wrote a bulletin called Mysteries of the Gobbi that depicted a serpent race. This bulletin was written as literature of the secret society named the Brotherhood of the White Temple that Dorian founded, a fraternity that believed the end times were near and that avid speculation about conspiracies all the way down from UFOs to Atlantis to reptilians. Much like Howard's serpent men, Doriel's serpent race was said to have had bodies like men but heads like a great snake and an outstanding ability to take human form the humanoid reptilians also appeared in Dorian's poem, The Emerald Tablets, which placed him in the spotlight for conspiracy theories, in which the author introduces ancient Emerald Tablets written by Thoth, a priest-king from Atlantis, which he claims he was able to translate. Professor Bracken asserts that it's very likely that Dorian's ideas for the Emerald Tablets are also rooted in the Shadow Kingdom by Robert E. Howard. In turn, Doriel's poem set the foundation for David Icke's book, Children of the Matrix, and this goes on to show that conspiracy theorists often base their work out of one another, much like regular philosophers or historians. Conspiracies are often related to each other, and many times overlap, which is the particular case here with reptilians, the Matrix, and Atlantis. Many conspiracy theorists believe that in order to identify a lizard person, one must check for eyes that change colour, like those of a chameleon. True red hair, low blood pressure, extremely good eyesight and hearing, UFO connections, psychic abilities, unexplained scars on their body, capability to disrupt electromagnetic fields and electric appliances, among other bizarre characteristics. Despite this detailed description, it is still thought that it's near impossible to determine for a fact who is a reptilian due to their masterful ability of shape-shifting. Notwithstanding said difficulty, Ike himself has said he has seen some of these features manifest firsthand, and he knows former British Prime Minister Ted Heath is a reptilian because he saw his eyes turn entirely jet black while they waited for a Sky News interview they both participated in in the late 1980s. Another interesting twist on the reptilian elite theory is that it could be fabricated entirely. Now that seems contradictory to believe in something because it's possibly made up. But some New Age philosophers believe that the government releases absurd theories into certain gullible public circles on purpose in order to deviate attention from reality, whatever that reality may be. Releasing many nonsensical sounding theories, the government supposedly guarantees that conspiracy theorists aren't taken seriously by others, due to their unusual beliefs, therefore discrediting them. However, it's thought that jumble between those absurd sounding theories comes the truth perhaps even that the world is really governed by reptilian shapeshifters, but by utilising this cunning strategy, the powerful elites ensure the majority of the public is indoctrinated to disregard conspiracy theorists, without even considering them, as they are well known for their extravagant beliefs. Ex-President Obama has also had his fair share of conspiracists' eyes on him, particularly during his mandate. And a video that surfaced in 2013 allegedly shows a reptilian from outer space guarding him. The narrator of this video, posted to YouTube, mentions a bald-headed bodyguard protecting President Obama during his March 4, 2013 speech to the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee. The narrator goes on to say the bodyguard could be a shape-shifting alien humanoid working for the powers that be, caught in a high-definition video. Even though at first sight he looks like the average Secret Service spook, a series of odd features on his head, face, plus a very strange behaviour and creepy movements, suggest something else. However, despite this description, another shot recorded from another angle, and with very low lighting, makes the supposed alien bodyguard look somewhat different. His head is shown to still be struggling back and forth, keeping his eyes on the crowd, and the narrator observes that from this perspective, his facial features are no longer human at all. Furthermore, the narrator goes on to suggest that technology is being used by the agent, with help from the government, to keep his true identity hidden from the public, but that it must have glitched for a moment, allowing his reptilian characteristics to be captured on camera. All of this so-called evidence of a partnership between a powerful conspiratorial elite and at least one extraterrestrial race. In this case, the narrator speculates that the alien could be of reptilian-humanoid origin, as David Icke defends, which is sufficient to prove to some that they have infiltrated our society and are pulling the strings of mankind. Since then, the video has been removed and the White House has produced a somewhat humoristic response to the claims, which came across as a tad smirk and of bad taste to many who see the footage as incontrovertible evidence of the reptilian elite's existence. The White House made a statement dismissing the existence of intergalactic bodyguards by joking that they'd be too costly in an era of budgetary austerity. I can't confirm the claims made in this video countered Caitlin Hayden, the chief spokeswoman for the National Security Council, but any alleged program to guard the president with aliens or robots would likely have to be scaled back or eliminated in the automatic budget cuts. A historian named Edward Guimont has debated that this conspiracy, particularly the version Ike defends, draws on earlier legends that rose during the colonization of Africa, particularly surrounding Zimbabwe. The fact goes to show that theories about reptilian-like great beings who strive to control and enslave the human race have been around for a long time, and many people have long posited the existence of these extraterrestrial beasts. The suspicion of some regarding powerful figures and governments, has also played a part in needing some to believe in theories, such as this. And although it may seem outlandish to some, as it has already been said here, an astounding amount of people are firm believers and followers, and Ike has managed to sell many copies of the self-published books that detail the supposed existence of the reptilian elite. However, concrete scientific evidence to back up these claims is yet to be found, and as of today, this theory cannot be proven. Although all of this may seem preposterous to a lot of people, A lot of people are firm believers, and their suspicion of others and fear of being controlled has already led to some real-world violent events. One of these took place in 2009, when a Seattle resident called the emergency number after fatally stabbing his brother with a four-foot sword, declaring that God had spoken to him, and told him his brother was a lizard. The truth is that we as a species have long tried to pin all the evils of this world on certain groups in an attempt to explain the unexplainable and this theory proves to be yet another case of distrust and fear creating a scapegoat, or several, who in this case happen to be mainly the rich and powerful. We quote Mark Andre Argentino, a PhD candidate researching extremism. For the believers of the reptilian elite theory, the reptilians act as an explainer for the evil that has befallen them or the world. Even so, the world we live in is vast and mysterious, and we can't say for certain, that this theory will forever remain a conspiracy. What's your thoughts on the Reptilian Elite? We'd love to hear your theories in the comments section below. We hope you've enjoyed this destination declassified video. We're going to be talking about it a lot.
0: Since we started this channel, we have covered several different cases of children coming into contact with UFOs and aliens. It has always been fascinating to us, simply because as unlikely as it may seem, children are some of, if not the best witnesses to these kinds of events. It's true, children can easily lie and fabricate a lot of details, but normally, they will change their story frequently if questioned, and if threatened with possible punishment, they will often admit they were making it up. When years go by and the kids who are now adults still stick with the same story, it begins to hold weight. Why else would they continue on with a ruse if it were for nothing? Most children also know they wouldn't receive any type of money or reward for coming forward about what they had experienced. Adults it makes sense, many will want to sell their story for a paid interview or book deal. Plus. Adults will tend to over-exaggerate their accounts from what they witnessed, whereas kids will tell what they saw regardless of how weird and strange it may sound. This is not me saying that every story a kid says is 100% truthful and accurate, but it is something we should pay attention to. How kids can see something like a UFO and come back from it, and be able to recount the events of what happened so well. This is exactly what happened in the following story for today's video. Two young boys who were playing came across a UFO, and with one of the boys actually being physically touched by the alien. This led to an investigation that still has no concrete answer as to what the two boys saw that day in 1975. This is the story of the Kofu incident, and how even after four decades, the story is still unsolved. On February 23, 1975, two boys, Masato Kawano and Katsurio Yamahata, were playing near their homes in Kofu, Japan. Shortly before 7pm that evening, the boys noticed a glittering orange light in the sky. When they began to watch the light make rapid movements in every direction, they quickly noticed a second orange light approach the first light. After a few moments, one of the lights started to descend and approach the boys. The other light quickly made its way near a mountain called Mount Otago. As the first light got closer to the boys, Katsurio ran away. But Masato was frozen in fear as a large, black device began extending from the bottom of the light, which now appeared to be a flying craft with shiny metal on the outside that seemed to glisten, even in the evening sky. Katsurio attempted calling out to his friend, but Masato appeared to be in an almost trance-like state and was not reacting in any way to his friend pleading for him to run. The black object from the ship started forming into a bridge, and another, even brighter light formed at the top of it. A figure could be seen walking out and making its way straight to Masato. As the figure got closer, Katsurio hid behind a tree and watched on too afraid to cry out for his friend, who he was sure was about to be taken away or even eaten by an alien monster. But instead of that, the creature, now right in front of Masato, simply extended its arm and started patting his shoulder, as if it were trying to calm him down. When this happened, Masato fell to the ground and Katsurio screamed out for his friend. The creature looked in the direction of the noise and made its way back to the craft. Katsurya ran to his friend and tried to see if he was okay. Masato seemed fine, but didn't want to move. He claimed he was too afraid of what happened and wanted to make sure that whatever it was had left. Katsurya watched on as the craft made its way further away from them, and as he stood up he was able to make out important details about the shape and size of the craft. He sat back down to comfort his friend, and instead of running home to scream to their parents about what had happened, they instead sat there and talked about what had just occurred. Katsurio could tell his friend was still scared and was on the verge of tears. Masato told him about the creature and what he looked like, that it was around his height of four feet tall and had a claw-like hand with three very large talons. He went on to continue his description, saying that the creature had brown, wrinkled skin, and what appeared to be metal fangs. He also said that it appeared to talk to Masato, but instead of speaking any type of normal language, instead it was making a clicking sound, compared to a Geiger counter. The two boys eventually made their way back home to tell their parents. Not surprisingly, the parents didn't take the boys' wild story serious. But, with the two refusing to let up and seemingly getting even more upset as they told the story, they decided to try to calm them down and go to the area where the incident happened. But, before they could actually get to the area, to the mother's shock, they saw the orange lights zipping around the sky, in what looked like a repeating formation. They watched on in both horror and amazement at the lights and the fact that their sons could in fact be telling the truth, which opened up a whole new realm of fears for any parent. About five minutes into watching the orange lights in the sky, out of nowhere an incredibly bright light erupted from their direction, and the mothers ran to shield their children for fear that it was some type of explosion. But, thankfully, this was not the case. A few seconds later, when the lights dimmed away and they saw that the orange lights had vanished, they all stood there looking up at the sky expecting to see some kind of answer to what had just happened. Yet, nothing came. At this point, any doubt the parents may have had about the boy's story was completely gone as they could not explain what they just witnessed. The next day, both Masato and Katsuriya went to school but Masato struggled during the day due to him not sleeping at all because he was too afraid of being taken away by the creatures in the middle of the night. He actually said that he wanted to go to school because at least there he could distract himself instead of sitting at home and worrying about what was going to happen next. But instead of doing the normal daily things one would do at school, both boys retold the events of what had happened to both the other students and the teachers. And both parties were blown away by the story. The details that the boys had retold, with neither of them stopping to remember anything as if it had been rehearsed. This ended up catching the attention of the principal as well, and that led to the staff wanting the boys to draw what they had seen that day, so they could see if somehow it jogged any memory or if anyone could recognize what they drew. The news of this around the school called the attention of another student, who also claimed that he saw the orange lights from the prior night as well. Eight-year-old Ichiro Mengishi told his teacher about his experience, and that he actually saw the lights when he was riding home with his parents, but his recounting had him seeing it a full hour and a half before Masato and Katsurio did. This makes you wonder, if those lights were just flying around in the area, then how many other people had seen them but didn't want to come forward for fear of looking like a crazy person? And it wasn't long before two more people came out and told that they had as well seen the lights. Later in the day, still during school hours, a janitor for the school and another teacher approached the principal to confirm that what the boys had been saying was true. They couldn't vouch for the alien part, but they did in fact see those same orange lights. With enough witnesses coming forward, it got the attention of the entire school board, who had two police officers go out to the scene of where it took place, along with several teachers, to examine the area and see if they could find anything. When they first arrived at the scene, they immediately noticed two large, thick concrete pillars knocked over and broken near their base. Clearly knowing that two small boys wouldn't be able to cause this, it got them to wonder why nobody had reported it. Clearly, this would have been very loud, and somebody would have had to have heard it, yet the pillars laid there, as if the outside world were oblivious to anything even happening. Upon even more examination, the teachers accompanying the police saw indentions on the ground that matched with the shape of what Masato described in regard to the ship. The teacher took a soil sample from there and had it tested and it came back radioactive. And what is even crazier is that it was the only spot in the entire area that had any type of radiation. By now, the boys' story was becoming something bigger than anybody had thought it would be. What they were going to chalk up to simply two boys playing a joke on the school was turning into something out of a science fiction movie. The boys were intensely questioned by the teachers, parents, and the police, yet their stories never changed or altered in any way. They stuck to the same story that they had told their parents when they had run into their house, screaming out that they had seen an alien. Little is known after this. From what can be found online, the case stalled, and it was eventually closed due to the lack of any credible evidence. There are those out there who claim that it was the police trying to cover something up, but if you look at this from a realistic standpoint, they didn't really have anything. They had the account of the story, the radioactive soil, and the damaged concrete pillars, but that was all. And it could be explained away by numerous other things other than UFOs. That is not to call all of the witnesses liars, but just that the police may not have had any further lead into the investigation. And eventually, things dried up and they had to focus on other things. Since then, there have been no reported sightings of UFOs in the Kofu area, but the story of Masato and Katsuro live on as one of the most convincing UFO stories out there. What do you think? Do you think the boys made up their entire story, or do you think what they saw was proof of UFOs? Let us know your thoughts in the comments, and we will see you next week for another video. comes to the credibility of UFO sightings, one of the last things that you would believe to ever be taken seriously would be from the mouths of two children. After all, the imagination of kids tend to run rampant with speculation and tend to favor the more dramatic in terms of believability. This appeared to be the case in 1967 when a brother and sister, aged 13 and 9 respectively, told local authorities that they encountered four alien-type beings in a field in Cusac, France, near their village, going on to describe them as small, all-black figures less than four feet tall. At first, many of the residents in the village, including the police, brushed this off as nothing more than bored children playing games with them. but at the persistence that they go with the children to the area of where the aliens were spotted. When the police arrived there, to their shock, they found that the location produced a very strong sulfur smell and that the ground had been disturbed where a large portion of the grass was dead. What would follow would go on to be known as the case of the four little devils and would shake the UFO community for decades to come. This is the story of the Cusack Incident. August 29, 1967. Two siblings, Francis and Anne Marie Pouche, were watching cows owned by their family and making sure no predators came near the herd, and also kept a watchful eye on them so that they didn't go too far away from the family's land. As the two watched the roaming herd and played, they began to hear frequent mooing coming from across the open plains, accompanied by the thunderous distant sounds of the cows running further away from something. The children couldn't make out what exactly was causing the disturbance, but knowing that there was a part of the fencing that the cows could easily get over, Francis quickly ran after them to try to stop them as best he could. As Francis got closer, and the loudness of the distressed cows became more intense, small figures could be briefly seen. But, due to the tall grass, Francis couldn't get a good look at whatever was close by. He made his way to some large rocks and quickly climbed on top of them to get a better view. What he recounted was that he witnessed four small all-black figures moving away from the herd, not knowing if they could see him and assuming there were other children messing with the cows. By this time, his little sister Anne had made her way to the rocks and watched on with her brother at the four small beings. They would later recount that what they saw confused them. One of the aliens seemed to be collecting soil, another one was looking at the cows, another was holding some type of mirror-like object up at the sun, and the final one was seeming to give orders by means of hand gestures instead of any vocal communication. They were near a sphere-like craft that was extremely reflective, later described as being difficult to directly look at due to the sun blinding both children, and described in more detail that the sphere had four straight legs that had a small ball on the end of them, equally as shiny as the main body of the ship. The aliens at first did not seem to notice either of the children and went on doing these tasks for around 10 minutes before finally Francis called out to them and at that moment all four figures stopped abruptly and seemingly locked eyes with him. Francis was able to make out that their entire bodies were black like a shadow. They had two arms, two legs, and a head, along with a very sharp nose. The suits they were wearing appeared to be skin-tight, with no visible signs of seams anywhere. That was all he could make out physically. They all quickly moved back to a nearby craft, when seconds later, it seemingly teleported into the air, where the remaining two aliens on the ground levitated up and appeared to be absorbed into the sphere. At this point, the craft began to spin very quickly. The children recalled the sound of wind, yet they didn't feel anything. The sound was quickly followed by a soft piercing sound that increased in volume as the speed of the spinning increased. The sphere became brighter with each passing second, and then suddenly, it disappeared. Snapping out of their shock from what they had just seen, Francis and Anne ran to check on the cows and herded them back to their family's farm. With everything seeming to be fine with the livestock, they ran into their house and told their parents what they had just seen. At first, the parents were highly skeptical and figured the children were just trying to get out of doing their chores, as many kids do. Yet, as they continued to tell what they had just seen in extreme detail, the parents started really listening to their excited children. When they were able to calm down enough to tell them their entire story, Francis and Ann took their parents to the cows and even the parents had noticed how upset they seemed to be. Making their way back to the field, where the UFO and aliens were seen, the parents were surprised to smell the overpowering scent of sulfur, as well noticed that one part of the field appeared to have a large portion of burnt grass. This caused the parents to take Francis and Anne back home, where they quickly contacted the police to tell them what had occurred. From there, the police were taken by the children to the area and saw and smelled the same things reported by the family. At this point, the talk of what happened was making its way around the village, and more people were coming out to the area to investigate and find out what really happened. Police told the family that they would monitor the area for the next few nights, yet no other accounts were made and no other signs of aliens would be seen in that area. From here, both Francis and Anne would go on to be the subject of many UFO researchers for years to come. Francis would tell in later interviews that for weeks following the incident that his eyes would water uncontrollably every morning when he woke up. Some attribute this to the fact that he wore glasses and possibly the reflectiveness of the craft had some effect on him since nothing appeared to be wrong with Anne. In every interview and recounting of the event, both weeks and many years later, both siblings stuck to their story and never changed one detail about it. Even when questioned separately, they told no different account of what they said in 1967. To the UFO community, this was another strong story of proof that aliens do in fact exist, and Francis and Anne's story increases the credibility that reports about UFOs should be more researched. What stood out to many people, including the police at the scene, was the fact that it was witnessed by children. And while it would be very easy to discount them, the fact that their story never changed or faltered in any way, the issues Francis had following the event, and the scene of where it took place having the strong smell of sulfur, makes it hard to dismiss as simply the ramblings of bored kids. But, what do you think? Do you think Francis and Anne were making all of this up for attention, or do you feel this is another instance of children seeing UFOs and recalling it in vivid detail? Let us know your thoughts in the comments, and we will see you all in the next one.
1: Chances are that if you have clicked on this destination declassified video, then you already have an opinion on the question of life existing elsewhere in the universe. We are all entitled to an opinion based on our own knowledge, and maybe even some of our own experiences, but our opinions rarely influence anyone beyond our social groups. However, this is often not the case when it comes to the opinions of professionals. Much of Western society is based on the concept of meritocracy in that people who are in educational, scientific, technical, or political positions and influence those positions come with have earned their place through achievement and reputation. So we are more inclined to believe them when they tell us something related to their field. Sadly, the fear of damaging one's reputation has long been a stumbling block for professionals when it came to the subject of UFOs and alien life. Thankfully, since the 1990s, the atmosphere has changed, and now more than ever, more and more professionals from all branches of the sciences are coming forward with opinions on the topic. One of the most recent voices to join the chorus expressing their firm belief in life beyond our own world is a significant figure in the history of the UK's involvement in the exploration of space, namely Helen Sharman, Britain's first astronaut. Sharman's path to becoming Britain's first astronaut was not the stereotypical one we would come to expect. The origins of her flight can be traced back to the late 1980s, and the political instability that rocked the Soviet Union as the mighty empire began to break apart. While America is considered to have won the space race by putting the first man on the moon in 1969, the Soviet space program was both prolific and at times arguably more advanced with a number of firsts behind it. By 1986, such as the first satellite, the first animal in orbit, the first man in orbit, and a string of successful space stations from the Salyas program. The forecast for the future of the Soviet program in the early eighties looked promising with the construction of a new long-term space station called Mir, and the eventual adoption of a Soviet version of the space shuttle, Dutruba. Unfortunately, as the Soviet government wrestled to maintain its grip on power of the many Soviet states, the space program began to lose priority in the allocation of ever-dwindling funds leading to the Soviet Space Agency to do something extraordinary for the communist world, actually renting seats on their spacecraft, and time on the space station for rich private organisations, mostly from the West. The UK space programme at the time was rather limited in scope compared to the US and the Soviet Union. The British National Space Centre was established in 1985 to coordinate British government agencies and other interested bodies in the promotion of British participation. In the international market for satellite launches, satellite construction and other space endeavours, but didn't include an astronaut corps, and there seems to be little official interest in taking the Soviets up on their offer. However, there were those in the UK who had an interest in cooperating with the Soviets without government support, and this led to the Project Junior Consortium. Various British companies put forward money, either in exchange for influence in deciding how best to utilise the time. The first British astronaut would have an orbit, or to simply help promote their own companies as part of an advertising campaign. There were some major players in British industry involved in the consortium, including British Aerospace and the television channel ITV, who would televise the spaceflight. While work was underway to provide the funding, the search began for the astronaut who would be sent. The consortium undertook a publicity campaign, hoping to attract a suitable person. And this included an advert in a newspaper that read somewhat jokingly, Astronaut wanted, no experience necessary. One such applicant was the 26-year-old Helen Sharman, who had studied chemistry at the University of Sheffield before gaining a PhD from the University of London. Sharman found she was shortlisted, and in a live TV event on November the 25th, 1989, she then found out that she had been selected for the mission not having the expected military background like some of the others shortlisted. She was a surprising choice for some, but the consortium emphasized an importance on scientific acumen. Having been selected out of over 13,000 total applicants for junior, a process that saw her undergo rigorous psychological and medical testing, such as a tolerance to hygiene and motion signals and technical understanding, she then spent 18 months of training in Star City near Moscow, the cradle of the Soviet space program. On her website she explains that as well as the expected preparing for weightlessness, learning how to cope inside the cramped confines of the Soyuz space capsule, and how to deal with the physical stresses of the return to Earth, she also had to learn motion, which was helped by her getting to know her fellow cosmonauts' families. Despite the effort to raise the funds, the consortium failed to reach the total amount the Soviet space agency was asked for But Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev promised to make up the shortfall as a way to encourage other Western companies for investing in the agency. Thus, on May 18, 1991, Sharman, along with two other cosmonauts, blasted off on board Soyuz TM-12 bound for the MIR space station. While aboard, Sharman conducted various medical And agricultural tests. She also took a series of photographs of the British Isles and communicated with British school children via an amateur radio set they had built. Being just 26 years old and 11 months at the time, Sharman remains the sixth youngest person to ever go into space. Sharman departed there after a week in space, returning aboard the Soyuz TM11 capsule, which had docked with the station in December the previous year. This capsule had carried Japan's first astronaut to the station on December 2nd, 1990. He was a journalist, and like Shaman, his place on the earlier Soyuz TM-11 flight had been paid for by a number of Japanese companies working together. Since her historic flight into space, Shaman has been a leading figure in the British scientific community, using her time in space to encourage young people to take an interest in science. She's presented numerous documentaries for the BBC schools team, and would later write a children's book entitled The Space Place. In 2015, she became operations manager for the Department of Chemistry at the prestigious Imperial College London and has been the recipient of numerous science awards and accolades for her work. In 2015, British astronaut Tim Peake blasted off for the International Space Station and this flight reinvigorated interest in spaceflight amongst the British population. But while Sharman was pleased with this renewed interest, she claims that it has had an unfortunate consequence for her personally, and her spaceflight especially, regarding her gender. As she explained it, When Tim went into space, some people simply forgot about him. A man going first would be the norm, so I'm thrilled and I got to upset that all. Giving an interview to the British Sunday paper, The Observer, in early 2020, Sharman didn't hold back regarding her belief in alienation. Saying aliens exist, there's no two ways about it. There must be all sorts of different forms of life. There are billions of stars out there in the universe. Will they be like you and me, made up of carbon and nitrogen? Maybe not. It's possible they're here right now, and we simply can't see them. Shaman's words echoed previous theories about alien life, and how it could be hiding in plain sight. As she alludes to, there are literally billions of stars in our own galaxy alone an estimated 25 billion in fact, and many of those have planets orbiting around them. The chances that only this little blue orb in this rather uninteresting corner of said galaxy has developed life seems highly unlikely, given the galaxy's scale, and that is to say nothing of other galaxies. NASA scientists are even exploring the possibility that life once or possibly even still does exist on Mars, or the Saturn, Moon and Saturn's. As we've talked about in previous videos. Regarding her comment about not being able to even see the aliens, this too is something that the scientific community has speculated over for many years. It might seem like something from a science fiction movie, but we must remember that our perception of the universe is limited by our technology, and our technology is improving every day. Thus our view of the universe is changing as we learn more and more about it, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility. alien life is all around us we just haven't identified it yet. This is the view embraced by Lord Martin Rees, former president of the Royal Society and the personal astronomer to the British Royal Family, who said in 2014, just as the chimpanzee can't understand quantum theory, it could be there are aspects of reality that are beyond the capacity of our brains. This goes some way to explaining the Fermi paradox which has plagued the search for extraterrestrial life for quite some time. Named after Italian-American scientist Enrico Fermi, the paradox relates to the high statistical probability that life exists elsewhere in the galaxy, and that consequently we should find some kind of evidence of it, yet the lack of such evidence contradicts the statistical probability in the first place. As already stated, as our technology and understanding of the universe grows, we may find that the universe is teeming with life, that we just couldn't see before. Sharman, meanwhile, continues her work in promoting science to young people. The spacesuit she wore has been on display at the Science Museum in South Kensington for a number of years. In 1972, noted astronomer and UFO author, J. Allen Hynek, coined his three kinds of UFO encounter in his book, The UFO Experience, A Scientific Encounter. The three kinds of encounter he defined escalated from the sighting of something unusual in the sky to physical evidence of the sighting to encountering some kind of occupant of a UFO. It was this last one that captured the world's imagination, even inspiring the Steven Spielberg movie, appropriately titled close encounters of the third kind contact with the occupants of a ufo is probably the ultimate goal of every ufo researcher for it would prove what many of them have long suspected that we are being visited by beings from another world or even many worlds however with the cases of alien abduction and experimentation aside direct contact and the exchange of information between alien pilots and human witnesses has been rare and often controversial. Even rarer are the cases of repeated contacts over a period of time. In 2009, a story broke in the Italian media that, if true, is one of the most fascinating cases of contact in the history of UFOlogy, featuring not only numerous communications between humans and UFO occupants, but also pre-arranged demonstrations of UFO technology, including teleportation and the outline of how and why this planet has attracted the attention of an interstellar community. Known outside of Italy as the friendship case, but simply referred to as the story by those involved. It was not until engineer and witness Stefano Breccia went public after collecting the testimonies of those involved who were still alive that the world became aware of the case. It began in April 1956 when Bruno, Samasia and two friends decided to go for a walk around the grounds of a local castle near Pescara on the east coast of Italy. The three men had no idea that this casual stroll would result in a life-changing encounter with three alien beings. The aliens looked human, but the Italians could sense that they were not quite right. The aliens introduced themselves and began explaining who they were and their mission on Earth, referred to as the W56 aliens, referencing the year of contact. They would come to be known to the Italians simply as their friends. Despite the W56 (coughs) beings all looking similar to humans, the Italians noticed that there were distinct differences between them. One, for example, was incredibly tall, while in contrast to this, another of the beings was exceptionally short. But both had well-formed body shapes, The W56 explained why there were such noticeable differences between their members. It seems that the beings were not from one single planet, but an interstellar alliance of many planets spread across the galaxy. The differences therefore most likely arose from the unique properties the beings encountered living on their individual planets, such as variations in gravity. The beings explained that life on our own planet was created for some positive purpose within this alliance of planets. But now, in the 1950s and beyond, mankind was threatening that objective. With our corrupted morals and the advent of nuclear weapon, the W56 beings expressed their grave concern that humanity was on a collision course with self-destruction, and they aimed to help guide us back onto the right path. When asked why the beings are operating in secret, they explained that human society at large was not yet able to handle this knowledge and would likely lead to the calamity they were trying to avoid. And that was not all. It seemed that the W56 beings had enemies in the form of artificially created beings they referred to as contraries. The contraries were materialistic and preoccupied with the acquisition of objects and territory. The W56 beings added that one of their fears was that if mankind continued on its current path, then they would end up like the contraries. After the initial contact, Bruno and his two friends became the nucleus of a contactee group in eastern Italy for communicating with their new friends. Over the coming years, the W56Bs would make contact on a regular basis with the group, and in a number of remarkable ways. Home appliances, such as radios and television sets, were taken over by them to send their messenger peace, and the Italians managed to record a number of their podcasts in which their pleas for global cooperation were made in perfect Italian. Perhaps even more incredibly, the W-56Bs would use their teleportation technology to beam notes to the Italians. The group began to identify key alien personnel and assign them names, with the alien leader being referred to as D'Impietro. Pietro. The W-56Bs explained to them that there were numerous underground and undersea bases around the world to allow them to carry out their mission here on Earth. Most continents had at least one exceptionally large underground base, with Europe having one under Italy. These main bases were so large that they even had their own weather patterns and were created using extremely advanced technology that repurposed the soil to create a livable space. This method proved extremely unstable, however, and the W56Bs explained that if their technology was deactivated or lost power, then the caverns would close out as if the base were never there in the first place. As well as these large bases, there were also numerous support bases dotted around the globe that were much smaller and generally served observational roles. It seems that the W56 beams were never afraid to show off their technology. On more than one occasion, the members of the group were invited to view spectacular demonstrations of what their craft were capable of doing. They also didn't appear to have any reservations about photographs and video being taken of the demonstrations. The recordings of these crafts in flight show them as traditional saucer type vehicles performing typical UFO maneuvers, such as certain changes of direction that no normal aircraft could achieve. The exterior of these craft were often blurred, something that Dimitro's people explained was condensation as a result of the craft's propulsion systems. They also explained that rather than the laws of physics, their technology had more of a basis in what we would define as the spirit world. The images recorded by the group have come under scrutiny by researchers. While modern analysis techniques show that the images are genuine and have not been tampered with, such as imposing the images of the craft onto photographs or video of the countryside, meaning they were real objects, it does not dismiss the possibility the images were made using models suspended on rope or hurled through the air, as some skeptics have suggested. Somewhat curiously, Dimpietro and his alien compatriots began asking for help in acquiring supplies for them to use here on Earth. They would ask for large quantities of fruit, metals, and barium nitrate, which had little use for humans in 1956. Some of the supplies were paid for by the W56 beings themselves, but mostly it was the contactee group that had to foot the bill. Whenever the supplies were delivered, Bruno and his friends would have to distract the drivers in some way, so that they wouldn't see them being teleported away. The group often questioned why such an advanced alien race would need such help, but supporters of this story have argued that this was probably an exercise to either make the Italian group feel involved in Di Pietro's peace mission, or to test the Italian's commitment. Eventually, the contact group swelled to over 120 members of various levels of involvement. It also included non italians and there are reports that the W56Bs made contact with others in other countries. Unfortunately, as the years went by, the contactee group lost their own cohesion, and began to split up. Contact seemed to have continued to some degree right up to the 1990s, while some have claimed to still be in contact with the W56 aliens. Like many such spectacular cases of alien contact, doubts have been cast of the authenticity of the case. Some have suggested that the whole thing had been fabricated, while others have put forward the possibility that the contactees were the victims of an elaborate hoax. However, there is one intriguing piece of evidence to consider. Dim Pietro explained that his people had been on Earth for centuries, carrying out their mission of peace. And when he revealed his people's real name as Akron, Investigations found the term, or variations, in several ancient languages. As far apart as ancient Egypt, India, and Saudi Arabia, it has come to mean peace, or wise world. Since the golden age of Hollywood, science fiction movies have pondered what would happen if this planet became the subject of an invasion by beings from another world. While most stories concentrate on the personal aspect of the experience, a real invasion would have far-reaching consequences for society, and it would be society that would be our best chance for survival. To that end, as in any major emergency, we would look to our government for leadership in tackling the alien invaders. We have come to expect our governments to have contingencies for any eventuality which they can immediately implement when the need arises. Natural disasters, economic collapse, war, pandemics, breakdown of law and order. There are numerous plans available to most Western governments sitting in vaults, waiting to be unlocked. So what about an alien invasion? It might surprise you to know that several governments have at least acknowledged the possibility of intelligent life existing elsewhere in the universe. Even the UK Ministry of Defence has said publicly that they are open-minded to the possibility of alien life existing in the universe. But in its opinion, there was no evidence to suggest that they pose a threat to national security. Or perhaps planetary security would be more accurate. But what if that were to change? What if we awoke to the life-changing news that alien beings had arrived on Earth with hostile intentions? If there is a plan for what to do in the event of a hostile alien invasion anywhere in the world, no government seems prepared to reveal it. There could be a number of reasons why this may be the case. It could be that, like any war plans, they are kept secret so as not to tip off an enemy who could plan around them. It may be more simply that governments do not want to be embarrassed by having such plans, since most people will scoff at the idea of aliens. Then of course, there is the fear factor. If people hear that the government has plans for an alien invasion, then it would be human nature for them to wonder the government knows something the rest of us do not, much to the frustration of many ufologists and experts such as Nick Pope, himself a former MOD employee, the more likely answer is that there is no plan for what to do, if there is even alien contact, let alone an invasion by hostile aliens. Because of this, in 2018, he drafted a series of protocols for governments to follow, should alien life finally be discovered. His alien protocol plan explores actions to be taken by governments, ranging from the discovery of alien microbes, to the receiving of an alien signal, to the discovery of alien craft or space bombs. But as for concocting a plan to defend earth against alien invaders, the biggest obstacle is that we are attempting to address an undefined problem. We can predict the alien psychology, their intelligence, their technology, or even their motivation for invading. It might sound silly saying so, but we actually have more of an idea how to tackle a Planet of the Apes-style uprising than we do about an alien invasion. That having been said, there are a number of steps we could expect world governments to take if it were one day to happen. Here we are going to explore three of them and discuss why they would be so important in the incredible times that would come following the arrival of an alien invasion force. Command, Control, and Communications. Imagine the scene, you are watching another destination declassified video, when suddenly YouTube interrupts it with a wide screen, upon which is the YouTube logo followed by the words, please wait for an important announcement of the highest national agency, do not close your browser or attempt to open another video, you will be redirected to a government announcement shortly. At the same time, you start getting notifications on your phone from Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp and Instagram, all telling you to turn on your television to any channel, you do so and you get the same message as you two are showing. Then suddenly a voice is heard and gives the following message. This is an emergency announcement from the government. In the last few minutes, our country has come under attack. This is not a drill. We are at war. Citizens are advised to remain in their homes and wait further instructions. If you are not at home, then seek shelter at your place of work or in public buildings. Do not contact emergency services unless it's immediately urgent. Do not attempt to flee to relatives' homes unless instructed to evacuate in future announcements. I repeat, we are at war. In all likelihood, this is how an alien invasion would begin for the ordinary person. But have you noticed that a key piece of information is missing in the announcement, the word alien, is not mentioned anywhere in the broadcast? And many experts agree this would probably be deliberate. Even the most convinced believer in UFOs and alien visitations would have a hard time believing that an alien invasion was underway at this very early stage, but it's not the government's intention to convince the public as such. Instead, they would want to immediately catch the people's attention, so they would be more inclined to follow any further instructions without question, and a degree of ambiguity would actually be useful in achieving that aim. Communications would be vital throughout the invasion for the government to maintain authority, organize aid, coordinate evacuations and control any military action against the aliens. Without the ability to communicate, the government is rendered totally ineffective and our leaders become no better off than ourselves. In the 21st century, our ability to communicate is varied and widespread, meaning there are numerous ways we can share information. It also makes it that much harder for an invader, human or alien, to close down those lines of communication. Even war-torn Syria and Iraq have managed to access the internet to spread news of what is happening in those ravaged countries. After the initial shock of the invasion, the government would then have to organize how the country is going to function whilst fighting the alien invaders. A country at war cannot simply stop the population to hide since food and war material will need to be manufactured and then distributed. While we may look at our leaders with jealous disgust as they take to the relative safety of an underground bunker They will need to be kept safe in order to keep the country going. Think of them as the brain to the country's body. The body needs the brain to control it, but the brain needs information from the body to know what to instruct the body to do. As well as speaking with us, our government would also have to coordinate with other governments to ascertain a global picture of the invasion and share combat experience in order to adapt future tactics to make them more effective. This is how vital communications will be. Chances are, an alien invader would recognize this fact and take measures to stop us communicating with technology. After that, it will be back to the days of messengers, moving between towns and cities, either in cars, on motorbikes, on horseback, or eventually even on foot. Martial law. In the Western world, most countries are democratic with rights to freedom of speech and freedom of the press. We each have the right to criticize our leaders and express our thoughts and views without fear of prosecution, providing we do not engage in or actively encourage someone to commit violence or a crime. This of course breeds an environment for debate, but in an emergency war scenario, debate can only delay the attacked country's response. The declaration of martial law would instead grant absolute and unquestionable authority to the government in order to allow them to focus on combating the alien threat. We would lose several freedoms we take for granted today, including the aforementioned freedoms of speech, with the press simply becoming a tool with which to extend the government's ability to communicate instructions and even perhaps propaganda. We may bark at this idea now, but ask yourselves the following questions if we really were being invaded by aliens. It took Hitler just 18 days in 1939 to defeat Poland's armed forces because of his army's technological superiority. Given the speed at which a technologically advanced alien race might sweep across a country, there would be no time to debate anything and decisions would have to be made with great urgency or all would be lost. Having key instructions in print, such as basic first aid, how to construct shelter and where evacuation points are located could prove vital. Newspaper companies would have the infrastructure in place to produce that information on a massive scale to meet the demand. If you were living in New Jersey, Would it do you any good to learn in the press that the alien invaders have destroyed California? In the here and now, your primary concern would be with you and your family in New Jersey. Why would you need to know about California, which is thousands of miles away? It would only impact your emotional well-being, which would already be low. But martial law extends beyond limiting what we can say. It would also limit what we could do with the penalties being potentially severe. Fear would overwhelm huge numbers of people upon learning of an alien invasion, and as such, many could be expected to start acting irrationally, and probably violently. You may be best friends with the sweet old lady who lives next door, but when it boils down to you or her surviving, you may suddenly be able to justify all kinds of terrible acts, to take her supplies and improve your own chances. To that end, martial law would even grant law enforcement wide-ranging powers to keep the population in line. At first, this would likely involve being detained, but if the numbers of detainees began to grow to such an extent that it became impractical to keep them locked up, then they might be put to death. In the 1980s, a number of civil servants in the UK and US underwent training to allow them to take command of designated areas following a nuclear attack. This training instructed them on when to use legal force in order to maintain law and order. So this is not the stuff of fiction. There are people trained to order your death in a major crisis, such as during war. Fighting the aliens. Just how would you fight back against an invasion force which has the power to traverse the galaxy? Many scientists and scholars agree, compared to such a race, we would be the same as monkeys are to us. Monkeys can use tools, but how is a rock being used to bash open a coconut, the same as using an electric drill? It isn't. That being said though, If a monkey was to throw a rock at us, it would still hurt. So if we could hurt the aliens, how would we do it? In fiction, perhaps the greatest weapon ever to defeat alien invaders were bacteria common to our planet, as seen in H.G. Wells' work, War of the Worlds. This is by no means an unreasonable assumption. After all, our own history shows how devastating diseases can be. Diseases such as smallpox and typhoid fever carried by Spanish sailors played a huge role in eradicating the Aztec Empire from South America in the early 16th century. In order for disease to be a threat to the aliens, two factors must be in play. Firstly, the aliens would need to have similar physiologies to ourselves, implying they evolved on a planet similar to ours. Secondly, they would have to leave the protection of their technology at some point in order to contract the diseases, but a race as technologically advanced as to cross the galaxy would likely have surveyed our planet first for any such threats to them. Having identified them, they would probably remain in their craft, or at least wear some kind of environmental suit while on our disease-ridden planet. We can only guess how effective our conventional weapons would be, but ultimately, there would almost certainly be nuclear weaponry involved in repelling an alien attack. This would especially be the case if there were groups of aliens focused in a small area. Imagine if Hitler had a nuclear weapon on June the 6th, 1944, D-Day, using it against the Normandy beachland would not only blunt the invasion, but kill huge numbers of allied troops in a single strike, thus preventing another landing for months or even years while the allies rebuilt. Given the effect on the environment and the chances of civilian casualties, nuclear weapons would only be used if similar concentrations of alien forces presented themselves. But again, an invading alien technology would have to be so advanced as to survive the perils of interstellar flight that is doubtful any nuclear weapon in existence could overpower it. Using nuclear weapons may only end up killing ourselves faster, as we suffer the effects of the blast and the radioactive fallout. As we said at the beginning, we can't know how a real invasion might play out because we just don't know what we'll be facing However, there is some hope for us. Returning to the comparison about us being like monkeys compared to them, we may find that rather than being the focus of extermination, we are instead something to be studied or even admired. In fact, if we look back through the entire history of the UFO phenomenon, there is very little to suggest that if UFOs are alien controlled, that they have hostile intent towards us. Even the cases of alien abduction, which admittedly are quite disturbing for the victim, can be likened to how scientists today study animals by trapping and tranquilizing them. Human arrogance may be offended by since we have evolved to know that we are the dominant beings in our world. But then again, a queen ant has evolved to know that she is the dominant being in her world and has no concept of anything outside of that world. So that's three ways the government could defend us from an alien invasion. We hope you enjoyed this Destination Classified video, and don't forget to subscribe. UFO phenomena now has a number of well-established traits that define it, and among these are the case of animal mutilation, especially amongst farm cattle. Cattle can be killed and mutilated for a number of natural reasons, such as wild predators straying onto farmland, or even at the hands of cruel humans. What links some mutilations with UFOs are sightings of flying objects leading up to or after the discovery of the mutilated animals and the apparent medical precision of the mutilations. Eyes, tongues, and reproductive organs, among others, are often removed quickly and extremely precisely for no apparent reason. Like much of the UFO phenomena, we often consider such mutilations to be a recent mystery, but in fact, it appears to have happened since at least the 17th century. It's likely that mutilations happened before this too although the scientific precision of such mutilations was not yet appreciated by the human population at the time. Many alternative theories as to how these animals have suffered such mutilations have been put forward, ranging from consumption by flies, to cryptids such as the chupacabra, but few stand up to scrutiny, given how global a phenomenon it appears to be, which only reinforces the belief by ufologists that extraterrestrial beings are the cause. So if extraterrestrial entities have performed such procedures on animals, we have to ask the question, have they performed them on humans too? Located on the southern side of the Brazilian city of Sao Paulo, the Guarapiranga Reservoir was constructed in 1906 by the Sao Paulo Tramway Light and Power Company to supply water to the nearby Parniba Hydroelectric Plant. From 1928, it also began to be used to supply water to the city's population. Like many large bodies of water in Brazil's sprawling urban landscape, it eventually attracted the impoverished, who built shanty towns along its banks. The reservoir itself would be little known outside of Brazil were it not for a bizarre and grisly incident that occurred in 1988. On September the 29th, a young boy was walking home from school along the banks of the Tertiary Billings Reservoir, a few miles to the east of Guaraparinga, when he spied upon a number of birds on the ground, taking an interest in what the boy initially thought was a washed-up animal carcass. It was only as he got closer to it, hoping to hit one of the birds with his slingshot, that he realised it was the mutilated body of a middle-aged man. The young boy raced to the nearest group of adults and told them what he had discovered. Soon, the police were on the scene, suspecting they had come across yet another victim of the many violent gangs that infested Brazil's cities. Indeed, the reservoir had become the preferred method of quickly disposing of bodies of those caught up in the violence, so the police officers had no reason to suspect this body was anything out of the ordinary. However, the officers that attended the scene were puzzled by what they saw. Instead of a bullet-ridden body or a slash-throat, the male victim had instead been mutilated in a bizarre but precise fashion. The coroner's report later explained what the officers all saw. The eyelids had been surgically cut away and the eyeballs removed, while the tongue and section of the jaw, the left ear, lips and flesh around the mandibles and neck had also been removed. The police photographed the body while news of the discovery began to spread amongst the local people, sparking rumours from the possible to the bizarre. The police quietly removed the body during the night and transported it to the coroner's office for further investigation. This revealed even more bizarre injuries, including a number of puncture holes around 1.5 inches wide under the armpits, in the legs and in the arms. It appeared that these holes were created in order to extract flesh and muscle from inside the body. Going deeper, the coroner found that the liver, kidneys, stomach, large and small intestines and pancreas were all missing while the chest and stomach had shrunken down afterwards as a result. With no apparent incision having been made other than another of the small and precise holes near the navel, the coroner was forced to conclude the organs were extracted through this hole in some way. Additionally, the victim's colon had apparently been called out. He had been castrated, and finally every single drop of blood had been drained from his body, to such an extent that all the wounds showed a distinct lack of bleeding. Even more bizarrely, Rigor Mortis had not set in, despite it being over 24 hours since the coroner concluded the man had died, while the body did not emit any of the usual odours one would expect. The coroner even noted that despite the boy having found the body surrounded by birds, they hadn't taken to feasting on the victim's flesh. If all of this wasn't enough, perhaps the most mysterious part of the coroner's report was also the most grisly, that in his opinion, the man had been fully conscious during the procedure. Toxicology didn't reveal any anesthesia or drug, which would have paralyzed the victim, but examination of the body didn't reveal any signs of physical restraints being used, such as bruising either. Yet in order for the holes to be so precisely made, the victim would have had to have been completely immobile. This begs the question, how his attackers achieved this, since even a willing victim couldn't possibly keep still with the pain of being drilled into. Despite the missing piece of jaw, there was enough teeth remaining to identify the man through dental records, although in respect to his family, his name hasn't been revealed publicly. What is known is that he was 53 years old and had a history of alcoholism and epilepsy. He had been reported missing three days earlier, having gone fishing on the reservoir. The police, with no other leads, dismissed the case as an unfortunate accident. They concluded the man had died while swimming and was then feasted upon by predators, despite the coroner's report which outlined the surgical precision of the holes. The inability of the authorities to find a cause of the death has led to some investigators to accuse them of a cover-up, because it would not be until 1994 that the coroner's report and photographs of the body would be leaked out. The clear parallels of the condition in which the body was found with that of typical cattle mutilations is clear. Perhaps even more disturbingly, this is hardly the only human mutilation to be carried out in this manner by forces unknown. It's not even the only one in Brazil, for in 1981, a similar case occurred in the same Brazilian state as Guaraparanga, near the municipality of Panorama, which was being plagued by UFO sightings at the time. Abel Boro and his friend, River Ferreira, noticed a spinning circular object above them, which fired a bright light that washed over Boro's body. His terrified friend ran away to get help, but when he returned with some locals, they found Boro's body devoid of any blood. UFOlogists have long speculated as to why the occupants of a UFO may want to extract organs and tissues from living beings here on Earth. With theories ranging from scientific study to some kind of reproduction requirement, either for themselves or even possibly for us. Regardless of the reasons, the apparent willingness of extraterrestrial life to kill for their purpose implies they do not differentiate us from any other organism on this tiny blue marble called Earth.